Welcome to the Woman's Own Book Club Guest Author of the Month. Written and released just a few short years after the suicide of her son, Glynis Horning's Waterboy is heartbreaking and beautiful, like her son, Spencer. Personally, I couldn't imagine a more difficult book to write, and yet it's through words that award-winning journalist Glynis worked her way through trying to understand this devastating loss. Loss of a young man whose glow was dimmed by deep depression exacerbated by a blood disorder. Glynis was a guest on the Medieval Land Literary Festival programme earlier this year. I'm Nancy Richardson, courtesy of founder of the festival, Daryl David. We're sharing the interview with you once again. Well, it has fallen to me to do this interview. And it's interesting, Daryl, that you say this is one book that you've been looking forward to. And Glynis, Glynis Horning, I have to say, this book, I've almost been avoiding it because I thought I can't read this. And I just want to say, first off, congratulations, huge respect for putting together this book, which is absolutely, it's an extraordinary work of art and it's an extraordinary tribute to your wonderful son. And the other thing I just wanted to say, Glynis, um, and you and I were colleagues many, many years ago. We both worked at Fair Lady, so I sort of know you from a distance and I've always admired your work. But I think first and foremost, and for those who don't know what the book is about, your wonderful Spencer, he took his own life in September 15th, I think it was, two years ago. And somehow, amazingly, you've managed to write this book, tracking the journey, your journey, his journey, your family's journey, and that of all the people around you, because you were like a sort of a a pebble, you know, with the ripples around you. But I, I felt that you were carrying a huge amount. So once again, congratulations on putting together this book. I suppose my first question to you is, um, forgive me, I hope you can bear this question. My first question is, is to tell me about Spencer. What sort of guy was he? Spencer was a golden boy in every way. Um, he was such an easy boy from birth. I mean, I had him quite late in life and he was an absolute blessing. We couldn't believe it. He was very easy, very warm, very bright, very intelligent, with a wonderful sense of humour. He lived a very ordinary life. Uh, He had wonderful friends. He enjoyed the things that we all did, camping, you know, getting together for the odd social with people. And he just seemed to excel at whatever he did. He did extremely well at school, and then he went ahead at university, and he seemed, seemed that nothing could go wrong. And it was right through to his final year at Varsity that suddenly the wheels started to come off and we realized that the sort of inklings we'd have of depression and anxiety made themselves felt. Yeah, the story picks up and explains the terrible journey we then found ourselves on. But my memories of all the earlier years of such happiness and the joy that he brought to us, and I'll always treasure that. Yes, and you've you've shared a lot of those memories and a lot of that joy and a lot of that warmth and, and the, the goldenness of Spencer in the book, which is a wonderful thing. But I'm not sure how you how you managed to do this, but it appears to me that you were writing a, a diary at the time of his death. But, but just before we get onto that, I just want to go back to him. You say he was this golden boy, everything was going for him. Depression suddenly sort of manifested itself, whether it was sudden or gradual, who knows, because these things creep up on you. 
but this is not something that you were unfamiliar with. I mean, you are an award-winning writer on the subject of mental health, so it would have been something you knew, but the nuances of it are, are too big to, to really grasp, but he did have a condition. He had a condition that I find difficult to say, is it thalassemia? Thalassemia minor, yeah, it's a blood condition where your red blood cells are not quite properly formed, um, which means that you, you don't have enough oxygen getting to the parts of your body, so your energy levels are low, so fatigue becomes a problem and concentration becomes a problem, and I think as, you know, final year engineering um, is very demanding, and I think coming up against that when he was feeling low, things kind of came to a head. Um, and that's when the depression started to really set in. And we, we actually, I noticed it, <laughs> I saw it for the first time. One feels so blind, especially when you're a, a health writer who writes in these areas. But it took me so by surprise the first time I came in and found him, my six foot wonderful boy lying curled up in the fetal position, weeping. And it was just, he was exhausted and absolutely flat, he had no energy. And it, he was just depressed and that's when he was he was diagnosed and yeah he had to step back from his varsity studies his psychologist and that said that the only way to go he, it was a you know he had, he had major depression and severe um, stress and then he pulled himself back and he made himself go back and he after doing master math studies part-time to help put himself through he carried on and he pushed through and he got his degree and that's why when this all came to a head, it was such a surprise. It was this really ordinary Sunday morning. And next thing, my husband was standing in the doorway of our room saying, Spencer is dead. And unbelievable, your whole world turns upside down. You can't believe it went to where it was. And when you thought you were getting a handle on it, where he was getting treatment, he was on antidepressants, it started beating himself off. And suddenly, as he was about to start his first job, this came. Yeah, it's, it's, it was a yeah. huge shock. Yeah, a shock and yet you have a sixth sense. I think you had a very good communication with him. The two of you were very close. Did he talk? Did he, did he share that? I mean, he knows what you know um, because you, I'm sure you talk about your work and the work that you do, the writing that you do. Did he, did he open up to any extent? You know, he was one of those, he was, he was also quiet in that, so he was very, he was, he was private within himself. He would open up to a degree, um, but, but not pour out too much of himself beyond that. But because I knew in the moment we first started, he was being treated about depression, I would try to bring this up. He would often walk the dogs with me as I write in the book, and, and I would mention things like friends of mine who had been dealing with depression themselves, um, had told me, you know, that just small steps, my boy, and, and, and you don't have to be anything. You just have to be. All those sort of soothing things which I thought might help and that one trusts out in one's journalism and all that sort of advice. And yet when you stop afterwards, I think when you've read the book, you'll see what happens is that I, in the end, my youngest son managed to get to his computer and we tracked through his computer history and you can kind of see where somebody's mind is going when they're really depressed. And looking back on it now, all those things which I thought might be soothing and calming and giving him insights and things to help. I think when you're maybe that depressed, it almost makes it 
more difficult in a way because those things you don't believe you know you can think well if the suicide doing anything severe or extreme at this stage would be an, an over reaction to a small temporary problem but when you're that depressed it doesn't seem temporary and it doesn't seem to be small and it just obviously all seemed too much yeah so yeah it, it almost seems like you know and that chapter at the end we'll get to that it's just extraordinary you tracking through his his computer history what he'd been looking at what he'd been what he'd been thinking and the speed at which he'd sort of moved from one thing to another it's just extraordinary and you know one does sort of feel maybe nothing could help because there was nothing if you couldn't have done it psychologists couldn't have done it the meds he was taking meds he was trying to get himself off them for all the obvious reasons but you know Dennis let's look at let's let's look at the practical side of this because amazingly you've written this book which really quite soon after the event were you keeping a diary because your entry seemed to be quite raw quite immediate did you have a diary it wasn't a formal diary as such. I sort of just scribbling odd things on a desk diary, um, you know, of funeral arrangements and this, but nothing with too much detail. But what really became the backbone for the book was I started right from the first night messaging my very best friends, who I call my trinity, who are from childhood, um, one from nursery school days who's living in Copenhagen another one who's now living in Missouri in, in America and St. Louis and then the third one living um, in the Cape near Stellenbosch at the time now Franschhoek and I would message them just telling them what was happening pouring out what I was feeling my friend the one in, in the Cape had lost her husband to suicide many years ago so she particularly and she has done therapy so she was a really good sign, but the others, the one in Copenhagen, had UNICEF and has incredible compassion and understanding. And my friend in America has got this very sharp brain. She was an English lecturer and she's very like, I don't be, you know, she was sort of in the no nonsense approach. So between the three of them, I would message them and they would message back to me. And those messages actually became the, the backbone that I almost filled in the bits around that when it came to actually writing it. And putting it all together they were amazing they they kept me afloat through this yeah, they yeah. of course and my husband and my and my second son who's just been absolutely amazing unbelievable your boy you and absolutely amazing and your husband let's just spend a moment with the trinity because they are one hell of a bunch of girls because they they weren't sort of soft soaping around you saying oh dear i'm so sorry and this and that they were absolutely right there with you were these WhatsApp messages? Were they emails? How how did you physically do it? Because somehow you had to um, harvest back that material for the book. It, it was WhatsApp messages, and then, and then some of them were emails as well. So it was a mixture of them. It was mostly WhatsApp, but occasionally lengthy emails because it's easier for me to tap with all my fingers when there's something at length. Um, and Anne, in particular, um, who's the one in Copenhagen, she was extraordinary. She actually found a way. Uh, when I started doing it, of, of copying your text and then converting them into email. And I was doing it and she just said, you can't because I was working full time. I still do like now writing in the mornings, doing online editing in the evenings and putting this somehow between those things. She is now retired. So she helped to convert a lot of those messages into email for and send them to me. Um, um, and then I just did it myself with the other two. And then I would 
choose bits and whichever spoke most and put them together in some kind of chronological order and that became the structure of the book. Gosh, it takes a sisterhood to write a book, eh? <laughs> it was a real group effort. But this is a really corny question. Did it help? Because you're somebody who uses words all the time. And we know a lot about the therapeutic, the, you know, the cathartic, the, the benefit of, of writing, you know, when you pour it all out. But you're so used to writing with, a, with a, an end result. Did it help? I mean, did it help working with this material? I can only imagine that, that it must have been like walking on knives, writing it all over again. Or did it help? It was walking on glass, as I spoke, as I felt it. When you said walking on knives is pretty damn close. It was, it was excruciating, but in a way, it also just brought the vividness of it all back to me all the time. And I think it was important to do that because in a way you, you're reliving it as you do it, but you're also putting it on paper. So you, you're being right there with it, but you're pushing it that little bit further away. It's a, a strange feeling. Um, and I do know when I finished and I got to the end and you never feel that you've got to the end, there was, I think, a feeling of resolution, um, of, of dealing with an aspect. But, you know, you always think, if I just do this, it will all be okay. I'll just do that. Um, do the book to celebrate, to mark the boy, to make sure he leaves some kind of mark and can help other people. He can reach out and say one other person and you think for all that feels wonderful to hear that and to be, have had the most credible response to it but at the same time you realize it's never going to be okay you know there's still probably i think the vague part in one's mind and all parents who've been through this would say where in the back of your mind you kind of think something will happen and the door will open and they'll come in again you know yeah. it's very very difficult to put it down finally and put a line under it and say that's changed my trinity helped describing yes. the boy yes. in terms of the stardust and the atoms and seeing him in a different form but it's very difficult i mean just the other day i opened a drawer with his clothes and again and i was finished i mean it's just how this kind of journey goes you know mm. well luckily the, luckily the trinity is not going away anytime soon so that they're there holding you and, and I can only imagine that once you'd finished the book, I mean, I'm just sort of trying to, as one does, put oneself in, in your place, that finishing the book might have been, oh, oh, I've, I've done it, you know, it's it's over. But, I, but the thing is, as you quite rightly say, and I can only but imagine, that the book itself has got legs and a legacy because there must be, I can't, I mean, we know what the suicide statistics are in South Africa. There must be so many people who've, who've cherished this book because they would be able to project themselves into it. Has it had, has its its tail, if you like, have a lot of people been in touch with you? I can imagine that you must be very sought after as somebody to go and speak. It, has there been much of that? There has, it's just been extraordinary. People have tracked me down through WhatsApp, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, whatever, and I've just been getting the most extraordinary incredibly moving messages from people and it's given me other perspectives that I try and share mine and people say I lost my child five years ago whatever and people say can't you get over it now you've got to put it down and I say you don't understand what I feel read this book and they give them my book um, 
and just other people. I had this extraordinary man, um, I, I won't name him, but he's a, he, he, he contacted me who said he's a psychologist in the Free State and his wife is a hematologist. And he said, even as a psychologist and with a wife as a hematologist, their child also had a problem. Um, it, it wasn't thalassemia, but it's something linked to um, ME um, and, and depression. And they couldn't save their child who drove his car into an oncoming lorry. Um, extraordinary, the parallels between this child and my child, and you see all these new resonances. And I've got to tell you, if you've read the book, you'll know that we had sunflowers on Spencer's coffin and sunflowers have become a bit of a symbol for him. And the psychologist told me that the, the lorry that his son drove into and like, thank God the lorry driver was not hurt. The lorry fell on its side, but he was fine. The son died instantly. The lorry had been carrying sunflower seeds. And this man said on the anniversary of his child's death, he drives out to this place and he couldn't believe it. He arrived there the year after and there were sunflowers growing where the odd remains of this vehicle were. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just telling them. I get these kind of stories are shared with me. and. I just, and the, he said it helped so much to read this and to see other people going through this and somebody else who also feels guilty that they, what could you miss, what could you have done? The end is questioning. And people seem to, to find that, it, okay, it's just, it's all right. It's normal yeah. in a way. Um, yeah. and, and it helps, helps me that it helps them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it is. It is the raft you have created to cross the river and leaving it now for somebody else to pick up and use. But, you know, um, just on a sort of more practical level, I'm reading this book thinking, I don't know how you've written this book, but over and above it all, you were working. You were going into the office, you were writing other articles. And I thought, how did you manage to keep body and soul together? I mean, I know that what's the line, just do what needs to be done. But how did you manage to, did, did you put the whole awfulness of it, the whole tender package of it, into a little package and, and leave it there while you went off to work and did other things? How did you cope? My editing work is very absorbing. When you do it, you have to be there in that moment, reading those words and doing those corrections. And, and that was an escape in a way. That was eight hours almost of escape. It was when those hours ended that it got me, you know, Spence used to fetch me from my editing job because we had problems with family cars. So he used to use the car to go and teach master. But he'd come and fetch me. So at the end of my shift, when I finished, that's when I he would normally be there. And that's when it would hit me. And I'd be devastated. So every evening at about that time, I would, I would be finished. It would be very difficult to push back. But then writing the next morning, getting in there early, because it probably helps that I don't sleep very much. So I'd have three or four hours sleep. And if you're awake, you can't stop your mind churning. I, I don't care. I went for some deep counseling too. I tried the mindfulness meditation. I tried listening to this podcast, doing that. But your thoughts churn constantly. You're constantly remembering that morning and, and other moments and trying to get your head around it and deal with it. So in a way, working was my form of escape. And writing and putting it down, although being in it, it was like finally facing it and being there with it. And then, then when I went on to the other things, it was just trying to bury myself in each of them as an escape from what had happened. So in a way, writing and, and my work also kept me going 
Um, I must maybe give acknowledgement to them as well as to my trinity. Um, work is very important. I think people who stop work altogether, I, have, I, haven't, I actually was back at work in the building within a week. And in a way, it was, I mean, I, I, people would be, were amazing. It was before the lockdown and I would sit there with rolls of paper towels quietly at my desk. And people would pass me on Mari biscuits or, you know, but it, just being there and working kept me going. It kept my head in other places for at least yeah. a few hours. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's, there isn't a one size fits all. I mean, your sleeplessness is, is legendary. You know, in the book, you were managing to grab just a couple of hours and that in itself is very difficult to keep one's head together when you haven't had enough sleep coupled with grief. You know, it's clear that there is not one answer. What I do need an answer for, um, I'm looking at the time. Um, Daryl, I'm not sure how much time we've got because you're going to have to stop me. Just I, can, I can give you another five minutes. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. I'm going to move through very quickly. I feel quite sure there are questions, so I'm going to leave gap for, for questions. But I just have to say, Glynis, that not only were you dealing with the loss of your lovely Spencer, you were dealing with the loss of, I shouldn't be, spoiler alert here, with a number of other people. Um, there were all sorts of other things going on in your life. And I can only but imagine that it must have helped actually putting this together. So, I'm going to open up now. If, if there are any questions, speak now. Are there any questions? Let me have a little look in the chat box. I think people are sending you all sorts of wonderful things, Glynis. So I'm just going to take the gap and just keep going. So the music seemed to have helped. Music is a thread, you know, there were again, a bit like the sunflowers, there were bits of music that sort of came to you. If there were any one thing that you say sort of got you through it, and and the other thing that we have to touch on once again is Ewan, who managed to find Spencer's history, the computer history, which was a, a gift wrapped in, in rather complicated clothing. But was there any one thing that you think really, I, I mean, I hesitate to say God, but did your faith, anything that really helped? Yeah, anything other than the music and the odd synchronicity and strange things like that, it was probably swimming, which is another theme yes. of the book. Yes, Literally yes. getting up every day and just with Chris from the very first day that happened and just the routine, the swimming, the meditation, the cold water, which affects your vagus nerve, which helps with relaxation. I've just written a piece about it for Fair Lady for the January issue. Yeah, swimming helped. Is that not terrible? Uh, it, it helped, it helped. Spence used to swim there too. And it was being there and it was meditative. That helped enormously. You know, now that you mentioned the swimming, I know that there were all sorts of symbolic things. I know you saw a particular type of light as you were swimming down one channel. And I'm sure you, I'm sure you feel Spence all over the place. Uh, and maybe that's how it's going to be forever. But I think that anybody who has known anybody who's had depression not just who hasn't necessarily taken their life but who's suffered depression it's such an insight and I think that you're already the insight that you already have through your writing is just amazing so it's really a book I'm just going to show you a picture of the wonderful Spence there he is with his lovely big smile it's published by Bookstorm and I don't know, Glynis, how you did it, but I want to say congratulations and thank you very much. And I wish you all strength going forward. And if I can send my love to your husband and your lovely other son.
because you've been a very, very strong family. And I'm so sorry for all the other losses. Best of luck. And I'm sure we'll speak again, perhaps on Happier, um, happier Turf. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nancy. And thank you so much, Glynis. While you were talking, I was hoping that you would get into the title, Glynis. Where does the title come from? Well, Waterboy, because my boy was actually conceived under a waterfall in the Drakensberg. He always loved Berg streams. That was one of his biggest things. And my other son and I went up um, to the Berg and have quite a bench where we put a, a, a plaque for him overlooking a stream and just swimming. It was something that he did. He played water polo, he swam, and, and we swam all the time. And that was when I meditated and thought about him a lot. So yeah, he was our water boy. And also he was born in a thunderstorm and the broom seller told my mother, his name is Figanem Wula, which is he who brings the rain. So water boy. Sure. No, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful title. And uh, I hope I hope I didn't spoil it for anyone, but I was curious about the title, so I said I'll ask. But Glennis, thank you so much for sharing the story with us, and uh, uh, we wish you all the best uh, going forward. And as uh, Nancy says, you know, may we meet under happier circumstances. Maybe the next book can be something else. Maybe a walk through the Drakensberg, or or something like that. A kind of uh, Camino for the soul for you. But I wish you all the best. And thank you for giving us such a powerful opening to this Madiba land uh, last day of this festival. <laughs>